Hello and welcome to episode number 228 of the Armin Show podcast. We are in the place we have both a author, professor, both is usually two things. And with this book, pleased to meet me, it's in front of me. Bill Sullivan, welcome to the show. How are you doing today? I'm doing fantastic, Armin. Thanks for having me on your show. This is great. Now, as a little bit of a summary, you are an award-winning professor at the Uni- Indiana University School of Medicine. Are you currently there at this time? Yes, I am. Okay, cool. You're in Indiana. This is wonderful. PhD in cell and molecular biology from University of Pennsylvania. Articles in dozens of scientific journals, microbiology, genes, genetics. What led you to this field? It could have been anything. It could have been anything. Um, I was always attracted to the sciences because Mm -hmm. there was always a part of me that wanted to understand how things work. Mm -hmm. So I was a kid, I always enjoyed taking things apart and seeing what made them tick. And I'm not too much different than that. It's just that rather than like a clock, I'm looking at people these days and trying to see what make them tick. Uh, So that's what the book is basically about. Please to Meet Me is about what makes people tick, uh, mostly at a molecular level. So I got into all of this mostly uh, when I once I discovered I had a real love for microbiology mm-hmm. in college. I was really fascinated by these tiny creatures and the profound effects that they could have. You know, like Yoda always says, don't judge me by my size. These tiny microbes can actually impact uh, us and the world uh, at, at great levels, mm-hmm. uh, despite how small they are. So I've always been fascinated by that and um, how uh, cells regulate gene expression. So my research at IU School of Medicine combines both of those worlds and looks at gene regulation inside of protozoan parasites. Oh, this is wonderful specific. Speaking of parasites, I noticed that in the book, parasites and bacteria and or any sort of invading elements, we are built to battle them in response evolutionarily and they remind me of the gut bacteria. How important is gut bacteria in influencing how we act during the day? Which is odd because it's down there in our intestines and we're up here. Yeah. So that's what's so striking about the whole thing. And we should probably clarify at the outset that microbes are not necessarily good or bad. Mm-hmm. Um, especially the ones that get inside of our body. Many of them have evolved a symbiotic relationship with us. Mm-hmm. And uh, in fact, we couldn't live without them. Um, But, of course, you're right, there are pathogenic ones, um, including some that can get into our gut, like um, uh, virulent forms of E. coli or salmonella, Clostridium difficile. We certainly don't want those bacteria uh, thriving in our gut. But there's many bacteria, in fact, about 4,000 species, according to some estimates, that reside in our gut and do all kinds of beneficial things for us, including help us break down various foods. They synthesize vitamins and they produce a wide variety of other biochemicals that we utilize. So one of the biggest surprises, going back to your question, is that neurotransmitters that work in our brain Mm -hmm. can be produced by these bacteria in our gut. And this has revealed what scientists call the gut-brain axis. So these biochemicals, you know, the bacteria make about 95% of serotonin. Serotonin is a critical neurotransmitter in the brain, but it also works to stimulate um, gut motility. So it has multiple functions in the body, but there's a vagus nerve and other systems in the body that allow these chemicals to 
even though they're produced in the gut, to eventually make, our, make their way up to the brain. Another aspect of this is that those bacteria can also regulate the immune system, which can also have effects on our brain as well. I noticed that when you mentioned that when they severed the vagus nerve, it could impact something. The, the link is gone, and then it's not infecting the brain directly. Right. I believe John Cryan did those experiments, and that was pretty compelling evidence that despite the fact that these trains of bacteria are in our gut, they're still having an effect on our mind. Because when you sever the vagus nerve, which is one of the major conduits that I alluded to, we don't see the effects of the bacteria acting on the brain anymore. So we know at least one mechanism by which the neurotransmitters being made in the gut by bacteria or other microbes can get up to our brain. Mm. That's sort of like, you would think an SSRI will handle serotonin in that way, but then maybe a probiotic could have some influence on serotonin in the brain too. Right, now you're thinking like a biotech company. <laughs> <laughs> so they're on to this big time. Right. So all the drugs for mood disorders and depression uh, are thought to be operating directly in the brain. And that's a good place for them to work. They, they're highly effective and have um, changed the lives of millions of people. But, an, but another intriguing way that we may be able to um, get a hold on mood disorders is by restoring our intestinal microbes, it's putting them into a state whereby they produce neurotransmitters that do not lead to mood disorders or neuropsychoses or what have you. And we're, we're far from elucidating exactly how that's going to happen. But the, the model of it basically goes, is if we can develop a pill or some kind of probiotics that modulate the types of species that are in our gut or what they're producing, then perhaps we can have a beneficial effect on mood. Many people would even argue that patients can do this right now by changing their diet. There was a wonderful book put out not long ago by Scott Anderson called The Psychobiotic Revolution. Mm -hmm. And it, along with my book as well, contains pretty much some common sense dietary advice on how we can um, restructure, remodel our microbiome to be more compatible with our bodies because the Western diet there's convincing evidence out there that the Western diet, which is loaded with sugar, fat, and salt, just have catastrophic effects on our microbiome, which could in turn be affecting our, our moods. Hmm. I noted that in the moods chapter, but I'll come back to that because that's a later one. But connecting the gut bacteria back to our taste, I noticed yeah. the section on how we all have some different perceptions of taste based on maybe a gene variant. I like the gene variants across the book because you see, wait a minute, just this little thing. And then it'll be something that that person would identify with their whole life, but it was just one cytosine or something in, in a different place. Right. I right. think that's cool. What, what is one example of how uh, taste can be affected by a gene variant? Because I've seen some. Right. So I, I've been fascinated with genetics as well. And you're absolutely right. It's really sort of <laughs> philosophical to, to sit down and think about how one teeny tiny little change out of the billions of base pairs in our DNA can have such a big effect on our lives. So I'll, I'll expand a little on the, my personal story and pleased to meet me as I've grown up with this hatred of broccoli. Yeah, I can't stand <laughs> broccoli. It's horrible vegetable to me. It tastes too bitter. I can't stomach it. You don't like it. 
don't like it. <laughs> I grew up all my life like that. And I've rarely met anybody like me. Okay. Most people were fine with it. You know, they might not have been their favorite, but they could at least tolerate it. But if I smell a cooking, I'm like ready to gag. It's just really hideous. And, um, you know, my, my parents were always just like, got to eat your vegetables, eat your broccoli, blah, blah, blah. And it was, it was kind of traumatic <laughs> for me. I don't want to eat Yeah, yeah. I, they just thought I was being a bad kid. But I was like, no, it's, this tastes like poison. So it turns out, and I got myself genetically tested to verify this idea that I have a point mutation, which is a, a small genetic change in one of the taste bud receptor genes. And my tongue is literally coated with the taste bud receptor that binds to the bitter chemicals in broccoli. So my tongue is engineered to react very sensitively to those bitter chemicals, whereas most people have a tongue that doesn't have a lot of these bitter receptors and it doesn't register as intensely bitter to them. So they can stomach the vegetable just fine. And that's that's the genetic difference between us. And that's that's vindicating in a way because now I know why I hate this family of vegetables. And um, I take a little comfort in the fact that I'm not alone. There's about 25% of the people who have this genetic mutation. We're called super tasters because we have a super sensitive reaction to bitter chemicals. And um, it's a little unsettling at the same time because that means that certain genes can dictate what you like and what you don't like. Mm -hmm. That that's where it starts to get a little wow. The genes can have a really far-reaching effect in some cases. One thing that I thought of when I saw that part was maybe we'll see this in the next ten years or so. Looking at all the chefs that are top chefs, are they in the category of super tasters? Like is each category of people people that had a certain gene variant? Kind of interesting. That's a really interesting question. So I don't know of any studies, but I can tell you some things that I've read about. Um, I've read there's certainly an enrichment of super tasters amongst the individuals who taste wine for a living oh. and assign it um, all these fancy adjectives and characteristics. They have an exquisitely sensitive palate, uh, and most of them are super tasters. So they can pull out flavors that maybe most normal people wouldn't detect. Mm -hmm. Julia Cloud is another one. She's a very famous chef, but she had a strong distaste for cilantro, which is an herb that many people enjoy. Uh, but she says she would pick it out of her food and throw it on the floor. She hated it so much. And the reason why is because it tasted like soap to her. Right. And she's not alone. There, I think there's about 20% of the population that agree that um, cilantro tastes like soap. And... Um, we don't know exactly why that is, but it certainly has a genetic component. There was a, um, a personal genomics company that did an investigation whereby they found people who associate cilantro with the taste of soap have a mutation in one of their odor receptors that binds to alkaloids, which is the chemical that smells like soaps. You'll, if you go to your shampoo or lotions, you'll see alkaloids in them. Cilantro happens to make those. So oh. It's, it might not necessarily be a taste thing. Oh. smelling soap when they put cilantro close to their face, and that's probably registering, uh, you know, a, a, a 
a negative um, taste for them. Mm -hmm. That's always interesting when it's not like a direct link. We think, oh, it's just this, but actually, no, it wasn't that. It was actually a smell. Yeah, yeah, it can get complicated. And we're just talking about simple things like tastes, which are right. governed mostly by taste bud receptors and maybe odor receptors. When you're talking about more elaborate behaviors, like, you know, even height or, you know, like drug addiction or aggressive behavior, those mm -hmm. get far more complicated. Right. Speaking of complicated, I don't know if it was in a later chapter. It was somewhere in there, but I thought I'd bring it up because it just came to mind. But height... Height as an attribute of attraction. This was a later chapter because it's polygenic. I found that to be interesting that it's like, oh, they're tall, so I, I like them. It's a good representation of many different genes at the same time are probably good in some way or working together well. And no one would say that like as they're, I like this person because of these polygenic positive traits. <laughs> it just comes out with, I just like a tall person. I find that to be interesting. Yeah, that's not exactly going to win you many points <laughs> in the romance department. Right. Um, but yeah, height is, height is interesting. Um, we still don't know completely what genes are involved in height. Mm -hmm. there, there's probably well over 100 genes that could potentially be involved. So on the surface, it seems like a pretty straightforward trait. You know, you're either tall or you're not. But not only are there a multitude of genes involved, the environment plays a strong component. And it's an excellent example of how important the environment is. Because let's just do a little quick thought experiment. Let's say you have a genetic makeup in your DNA that under normal circumstances is gonna make you six feet tall. But if you take that same individual when they were an infant and put them in malnourished conditions, they're not gonna reach that six foot ceiling that they have the potential to do because of the nutrient limiting uh, environment. So there, there's a lot of environmental interplay with the genes and that's why it makes it incredibly difficult when you're talking about certain behaviors to predict what they're going to be just by looking at a genetic sequence. Mm -hmm. Malnourishment also, it makes me think of uh, adverse childhood experiences that cause you to like have DNA methylation on your DNA. Which is, I think is interesting because your DNA is supposed to be fixed and then you have representation on top of it of what happened to you that affects you throughout your life from just an early period of your youth. Is that fair to say? That, that's actually a great segue into the concept of epigenetics, mm -hmm. which is another um, one of these hidden forces that I describe in the book. We've been talking about some so far, such as your genes, uh, some of your microbes, one of the other key hidden forces is epigenetics. And you mentioned one example, one mechanism of this is DNA methylation. So let me clarify that for people who aren't familiar with the concept. Uh, epigenetics literally means beyond the gene. So it describes some sort of phenomenon of inheritance or um, a, you know, a gene expression that doesn't involve the genetic code itself. So we're all born with the genes that mom and dad gave us. There's no changing that. Mm -hmm. uh, so what we were talking about then at an epigenetic level is not genetic sequence. It's a chemical change that can occur on the DNA molecule itself or on proteins that associate with DNA. So any of these can be chemically modified. And scientists have found that when this happens, it changes whether the gene is turned on 
off or somewhere in between. So in the past, we used to think about genes as like light switches. They're either on or they're off. Mm -hmm. Epigenetics is teaching us that no, they're more like a volume knob and there's great flexibility in how the body can express a certain um, level of gene. It could be on a little bit, a lot, or anywhere in between. And that's why we can see such really diverse behaviors unfold, even though all of our cells have the same exact genome inside of them. Mm -hmm. So the DNA methylation you referred to is a chemical modification that takes place directly on the DNA molecule itself. And the consequence of that activity is that it slows gene expression down and in some cases shuts the gene completely off. It's kind of like you can imagine if your gene is a highway, DNA methylation would be like a lot of orange construction cones kind of put up in the way. And mm -hmm. you can't get down that gene anymore. It can't be produced anymore. So um, it, it's effectively winding down its production. And then genes can be demethylated, which is like cleaning those cones off the road, and then the gene can be made again. It's kind of a cool thing. It's like evolution built in a dimmer instead exactly. of everything's just cut and dry. Exactly. So it, it provides a really interesting twist to Darwinian evolution. And the more controversial side of this is that some of these epigenetic marks can be passed on to future generations. So that means that we give our offspring more than our genetic code alone. They can basically inherit what volume levels our environment put those genes at, in certain cases at least. Huh. Is that as easy to check? Like, let's say with 23andMe, be able to check... Methylation. No, they can't do that yet. No. Um, the science is getting there, though. We can certainly do that for some model organisms, like mm -hmm. fruit flies or roundworms or even mice. Mm. We can take certain cells from these organisms and look at what we call the epigenome, oh. which is the collection of epigenetic modifications that have taken place on the DNA molecule or even the um, proteins associated with it. But what we're finding, of course, is that those modifications change all the time. They're very dynamic. So when you do an experiment like that, you're really only getting a snapshot in time. Whereas if you sequence a genome, that's a more static entity. And unless it undergoes some kind of rare mutation, which can occur like if you sit out in the sun too long, or you know if you fall into a vat of spent nuclear fuel, <laughs> you know, those sorts of things can mess up your genetic sequence but your epigenome is changing all the time based on your environment. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. It's adjusting over time. One thing I did like much as I was reading the different uh, chapters of your book, I always look at the titles and the subsections because that's kind of how I take notes. And then I liked how it was meet your maker, meet your taste, meet your appetite, meet your addictions. It's all the things connected to you that you might not know about. So it's like get to know them for the first time. One of the chapters is meet your addictions. I looked into that as far as uh, I talked about drugs and who is predisposed to go towards drugs. And I've, I, it made me think about myself a little bit that I haven't used any drugs or any kind. Uh, I haven't drank. I haven't done any of that. And then I started to think to myself, is it more because I didn't need them? Or is it because I thought maybe I would have an addictive personality because of, uh, you know, maybe I was predisposed to or had experiences in my youth that would like influence me in that direction? Um, which was interesting. And then 
what is it that causes um is it more so people's genetic makeup that leads to addiction or more so their early experiences would you say or is it a combo i think it's a combination mm -hmm. addiction is a complex disorder mm -hmm. but it has biological underpinnings so you bring up some really interesting points so let's let's try to tackle them all and if i miss something we can come back to it mm -hmm. so addiction is actually quite rare um all things considered only about 10 percent of the people who try alcohol actually get addicted to it and that's not to belittle the situation or make light of it it's a very serious disorder mm -hmm. and uh we just want to make it clear that most people don't fall prey to it so this creates a very interesting dichotomy in the population. What is it about either these 10% of people who do get addicted, or what is it about the 90% that try it and don't get addicted? You can approach the question from those two different angles. So one of the first things that scientists sought to investigate were genetic differences between these two populations. And it turns out there's hundreds of genetic differences in the people who are inclined to get addicted to drugs or alcohol. So there are genetic predispositions. They're not the complete story, but it might be worth going through a couple examples just to illustrate the point. Mm -hmm. so, so for example, um, one of the genes that influence alcohol addiction is in a neurotransmitter system in the brain that is run by a, a chemical called GABA, G-A-B-A. -A. So this is a calming neurotransmitter. This, this neurotransmitter is necessary to settle the brain. So it's been found that a subset of people who are predisposed to alcoholism have a deficiency in this GABA system in their brain. And what that means, by consequence, they're going to have an overactive brain. It's just buzzing with activity all of the time. And it can be very frustrating. I've, I've actually recently met someone at a book signing mm -hmm. um, who told me they had this GABA deficiency. Oh. So they basically don't have this chemical that can calm their brain down. And um, that, for this person, led to chronic insomnia. They like couldn't sleep. Um, they had a great deal of trouble falling asleep, and it was because of this overactive brain. Fortunately, they were able to go to a doctor and get medication to solve the problem. But you know what looks like GABA at a molecular level? Alcohol. The alcohol molecule looks exactly, well, almost exactly like GABA. And it does the same thing. It calms the brain down. So some people, especially while they're adolescents, either accidentally or on purpose, they find out that when they drink alcohol, it calms their brain down and they feel normal. They can sleep. They can think straight. It's almost like a medicine. It's a bad medicine because it's an addictive substance. Mm -hmm. So this is really powerful knowledge. Um, the, the first angle that why this is powerful is because it provides a molecular mechanism why some people would seek out alcohol because they're trying to calm their brain. And it engenders some sympathy for this problem. The second reason why it's so important to realize this is because now scientists can make chemicals that resemble GABA that might be able to do the same thing but they're not addictive like alcohol can be. So we can come up with better medications to help individuals who have a GABA deficiency in the brain so they don't have to resort to substances like alcohol.
Mm-hmm. So that, that's just one illustration, and there, there's lots of genes involved with the GABA system, so there can be multiple genetic components involved, and any one of them goes awry, that individual can be predisposed to alcoholism. So this, this is a profound discovery because many people associate alcoholism with willpower and discipline. It's not about that at all. This is a bona fide genetic mutation which means it's got to be treated like any other disease, you know? So that's, that's really important. There's a stigma around it that needs to be erased uh, so that we can better understand the condition, find the funding to do the research, and then treat people in a more logical manner. The second big issue you brought up that is equally important to address is the environment. So there are some individuals who have... Um, genetic variations in their dopamine system. This is yet another type of neurotransmitter, but it's associated with motivation to obtain a reward. Mm -hmm. So usually when you experience something that is really good, maybe you eat a piece of chocolate or you do cocaine, your blood, uh, your brain is going to be flooded with dopamine, okay, which is basically telling you, hey, I really liked what you just did. Let's do it again. So when, you, when you're talking about things like cocaine and um, other hard addictive drugs, mm-hmm. uh, they put so much dopamine into the brain, much more than usual, mm-hmm. that um, the pull and craving toward it can just be, you can be powerless to stop it. it it's, right. it's so strong. I mean, it'd be like asking someone who is starving to refuse a meal. That, that's how how uh, potent it can be. And then, of course, people have mutations in this dopamine system that give them variability in how much registers in the brain. Mm -hmm. What this translates to is that some people can find satisfaction in simple things. They get enough dopamine in the brain, and they're content. Other people are thrill seekers. They're novelty seekers. They need more of a dopamine rush, okay? And drugs can get them there. Okay, drugs can satisfy that and make their brain feel good. And that's where the environment again comes in. Because if you have a thrill seeker, there's multiple ways which that person can obtain a thrill. Mm -hmm. They can seek out drugs, and that's easy to do if it's in your environment or if it's what, what, what your friends or peers do. Right. If you're in a different environment where you're educated that drugs are very dangerous substances, no one else is doing them in your circle, Mm -hmm. um, and you guys like to bungee jump or go skiing or seek out thrills in that way or or even do extracurricular activities in school, often that's enough. Um, Those sorts of different environments can, you know, be the difference why one person might get addicted and one may not. I noticed that when it was the... The mice trial with mice, if they're in a dreary, messed up scenario, they will go towards drug usage just almost without choice. If they're in a good scenario, activity outside greenery, they're jovial. It made me think of like, there's certain parts of Los Angeles, like I kind of do mad science teaching in an affluent area, and I couldn't, you wouldn't be motivated to use as much. It's just too calm, there's greenery, there's places to walk, there's no, it would seem like, why would I even do that? But then there's some parts of Los Angeles that's probably the first thing you'd think of, like, there's nothing here, you feel empty, there's a lack, I guess I'd try something, at least I'll feel something. You want to feel that kind of joy. 
Yeah, I, I think you've illustrated what can potentially happen um, when people are faced with those two different scenarios. And um, the experiment you're describing that kind of backs up what you're saying is a famous experiment called the Rat Park experiment. And basically what scientists did for this was they got rats addicted to morphine, I believe it was. Mm -hmm. uh, so rats and mice are great model systems because they get addicted to the same exact things we do. Mm -hmm. Okay. So it, it's not hard to get a, a rat addicted to morphine. Mm -hmm. So after they became addicted to the morphine, they put them in two different circumstances. One, they put them in a lonely cage with nothing to do. Mm -hmm. Put another group into a very large cage with all other types of rats, male and mm -hmm. female. They set up nesting areas so that the, the rats could mate. They gave them all kinds of toys and puzzles and a variety of food. You can probably guess the results. Okay. There was morphine laced water and regular water in both of these scenarios. The rats in the lonely cages all by themselves with nothing to do continued to drink nothing but the morphine water. The rats in Rat Park did not drink the morphine water. They drank regular water. So they basically detoxed themselves and got themselves off drugs because there was all this other great, all these other great things to do. We can learn a lot from an experiment like that. Right. It's sort of like your body tells you, I'm good. <laughs> I'm not, uh, there's nothing. But if you feel like a gap, then that does look like the food. If you're starving or the water, if you're thirsty, like that's the only thing I can think of for some sort of stimulation. That's right. That makes sense. Which affects mood. One thing that came to mind in the mood chapter was how many things come together to make a mood, to keep it in balance, which is why as humans, we have so many like little there. It takes like, there's like 18 different avenues to affect our mood. How, how key is that? Mood is a very complicated thing. Mm -hmm. um, scientists, the consensus does seem to be, however, that we are born with like some kind of baseline mood. Mm -hmm. And you've probably noticed this amongst your peers. Some people are either maybe more happy or optimistic all the time, whereas others are, uh, are, are more pessimistic and down in the dumps all the time. Mm -hmm. um, maybe not clinically depressed, but just kind of, you know, yeah. baseline brooding and, and it is, it's hard for them to obtain happiness. Yeah. And of course, there's a bunch of people like right in the middle that seem to have a good balance. So there's that, that basically tells scientists that there is a genetic component to mood. It's certainly not the whole story, but genes are clearly involved. One of the most convincing studies that I came across was a syndrome called Williamson's. This is a really interesting um, uh, birth defect where these children are born. I think they're missing about 20 genes because one of the chromosomes gets clipped off. So without these 20 genes, something really remarkable happens. They are happy all the time. There's just like no getting these kids down. They're really happy. They love everybody. They just run up and hug strangers and start telling them that they love them. Um, so it's a, it's a really unusual behavior. And obviously it has a genetic component because they're just missing these 20 genes. We don't know exactly what the mechanism is, but it illustrates a very, in a very, you know, simple example, how happiness 
by comparison, sadness can be controlled at a genetic level. You already mentioned earlier that serotonin receptors mm -hmm. um, play a key role uh, in depression, at least for many people. So there's a genetic component to that as well. So there, there's, there's clearly um, something in our DNA that is giving us our baseline mood. And whenever we stray from that, you know, life ebbs and flows. We have our good days, we have our bad days. But what the genetics is telling us is that there is a baseline that we always come back to that kind of feels normal for us. Mm -hmm. I thought about this as I was reading the book. I was thinking about my own baselines, like when you talked about testosterone, some of the description there of um, like cocky or not taking people's input. So I, I realized at that, that part I might have high testosterone, but then at some parts with the amygdala, or like fear response, I have less of that from maybe early youth material. So I start to see my like parts or like my dopamine. I don't seem to be very stimulation driven. So maybe it's already adequate. Did, did, have you thought about that in, with yourself, like where you are in those different categories? Yeah, well, that's a good question. I haven't really dissected myself that far. <laughs> but I think the point of what you're trying to say is, is, is dead on. And that mood is very complicated. There's mm -hmm. just not like one or even two chemicals that regulate mood. It's right. all sorts of things. So um, it's a and, and we're, there's probably things in our body that take place working on mood that we don't even realize yet, like the bacteria in our gut. Right. We're still at the tip of the iceberg, understanding their potential contribution uh, and and how it affects mood, which um, is another important component. Um, you know, depression is on the rise in this country. We're kind of rare in the United States in being um, a developed nation with such high rates of depression. Mm -hmm. And a lot of scientists are now appreciating that one part of the reason could be our microbes in our gut. Because this depression uh, just seems to have come out of the blue. It's a very recent development, which speaks against it being like a, a, a genetic component. It right. doesn't seem like everybody got genetically mutated. So now, you know, most people are depressed. Right. There must be something else going on. It could mm -hmm. be epigenetic, but it could be microbes. This increase in, in depression nationwide correlates with the introduction and widespread use of the Western diet. So the development of highly processed foods that are just loaded with, you know, things that taste great to us, but that we shouldn't be eating in abundance is causing dramatic changes in our gut. And those are measurable. Scientists have documented that Western diet causes the gut bacteria to um, not be as diverse as they used to be. Uh, they make different chemicals. They're populated with different species. And um, that is probably having an adverse effect on everybody's mood. So one of the common sense things you can do, not only to improve your mood, but just your health in general, is to get back onto a common sense diet of fresh food and cutting out the uh, excess sugar, salt, and fat that most Americans eat. That's true. I have noticed the people that really take into account what they're eating, they're pretty much doing well <laughs> in some ways, uh, which is kind of neat. The attitude, the internal mood that they bring to the table. Speaking of what they actually do, I noticed in this book you describe a lot of it's very flowing because it's your thoughts, you're described, you're like conversational. It makes it very enjoyable to read, uh, which makes me think, what are some key experiences that you think of in your life that led you to where you are today? 
a couple of key moments that, or not, it doesn't have to be a moment, but like maybe a time period. What would right, that be? yeah, I, I do get philosophical at times and think about that, you know, uh, why am I here? <laughs> why do I do what I do? And it's mm-hmm. kind of the, the, the motivation for writing the book and the title as well, because mm-hmm. I was really reintroducing myself to myself with this new understanding of the molecular players that, yeah, that drive behavior. Okay. So, um, you know, I'm, I'm a professor at the IU School of Medicine. So what got me here? Well, like I said at the beginning of our discussion, it was probably this inquisitive nature that I've always had. And that probably comes from maybe variations in my dopamine receptors. Okay. I'm a bit of a thrill seeker, but rather than, you know, uh, going out and going, getting involved with drugs, I'm just fascinated by nature and fascinated by uh, biology. So that's what gets me really excited. And it's probably a good thing because that has kept me occupied or distracted, if you will, from Mm -hmm. getting involved with bad habits. Right. Okay. Um, So that is probably one major thing. I uh, also, you know, I, I didn't grow up rich or anything, but I wasn't dirt poor. We were kind of in the middle. So um, that also kept me driven, uh, mm-hmm. you know, in, in school because I wanted to, uh, you know, make sure that when I became a parent that my kids were going to have a good life. Mm-hmm. And uh, that that was also one of the steering factors. Uh, so I, I knew I had to do well in school in order for that to happen. So uh, I I was pretty studious. Maybe there's genetics inside of me that I don't know about that created a a more or less obedient nature. So I would do my homework and do my studies Mm -hmm. and, you know, basically do what teacher says, blah, blah, blah. Less of like breaking rapport. Right, right. I I wasn't a troublemaker or anything. And um, you put all of that collectively together. And you have someone who's probably going to do fairly well in school. Okay. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, you just have a studious and inquisitive nature about you. And frankly, I kind of liked school. Mm-hmm. And a lot of students couldn't say that. Uh, they were, you know, right. their mind was on other things. Or maybe they had things going on at home that they had to worry about, which fortunately was not a concern for me. I didn't have a lot of drama going on in my family life. I could mm-hmm. focus on other things. Right. People who live in different socioeconomic strata, that is not the case. Right. I had the luxury, the privilege of being able to focus on my studies or, you know, the, the clubs and sports I wanted to do after school, whereas other people were just worried about making it home alive, you know, not getting shot on the way home from school sure. to right. where they had to take care of their sick single mother mm-hmm. or something like that. You, you, you know, we're, those are com- two completely different lives. Right. And uh, it, it's kind of frustrating when we were talking a lot about biological differences throughout right. this conversation. But I just illustrated two very clear environmental differences that mm-hmm. can make a huge impact on what some, you know, the type of person someone becomes. Mm-hmm. And, and neither one is like within the domain of choice. We don't get to pick what sort of environment we grow up in. Right. 
So um, some of us are lucky and some of us aren't. Right. Yeah, certain features that match up with the world that we're around. And, and I think that's really important. I think you bring up a really good point. People don't think about that too much, especially in America where it's, you know, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Uh -huh. Anybody can be anything they want. That's just simply not true. It is a really unequal playing field, although we like to lie to ourselves that it's not. Right. We like to think that everybody has the same opportunities, the same chances. On paper, they do, but in reality, that's just not, that's just not true. Right. Yeah, you know, a certain set of genes, you're in a certain area, it'll take this much effort to get over there. By the time you're there, you'll probably be tired in this capacity. You'll have to, it's just not really set up for that. It might be set up for something else. But then it's not spoken that way. It's just like, oh, John didn't do too well. Right. <laughs> <laughs> right. We put all the praise or blame on the individual. Right. And um, I'm not saying that's entirely wrong to do. Right. But you can't expect someone to excel if you don't give them the tools to do so if you don't give them the right education you know or the right nourishment you know there, there's critical windows in a child's development where if they don't receive the correct um you know nourishment or it, you know if they don't get um or if they if they're subjected to like adverse childhood experiences which i outline in the book Mm -hmm. These can have catastrophic effects, not only at a psychological level, but at a biological level. Cortisol okay. in the body. You, yeah, you might remember that um, children that are subjected to adverse childhood experiences, we're talking about neglect, abuse, or bullying. The, these poor children are not only scarred psychologically, but their DNA gets scarred too. And this is occurring mostly at an epigenetic level. Um, scientists have measured DNA methylation changes in children who are exposed to these um, uh, unfortunate environments. And the genes that regulate their stress response are all screwed up. You know, they're, they're epigenetically modified in ways that if you compare it to a person in a, in, a, in a affluent neighborhood, they don't have this stress mismanagement problem. So the consequence of this is that you have children exposed to these traumatic experiences, their stress regulatory system gets all screwed up, that predisposes them to um, adulthood that is going to be fraught with depression, uh, tendency to become addicted to alcohol or drugs, and in some cases, even suicide. Mm. It's sort of like those experiences, the methyl groups are like breaks on their ability to go forward, and then so they're slowed down across their... That's right. They, they, they're, they're biologically um, at a disadvantage when it comes to handling stress. And that can lead to a wide variety of problems, again, associated with the environment and their, and their particular situation. And this, this is a real fixable problem. You know, this country has the resources to fix this problem and give every child, you know, the benefits um, that they deserve. Okay. Um, I think, um, you know, Iceland, this is one of the stories that I outline mm -hmm. in uh, the last chapter, put forward some fantastic social programs uh, for the benefit of teens and adolescents to quell um, their addiction problem. You know, mm -hmm. this was decades ago, and now they virtually have no teens uh, getting addicted to drugs and alcohol because they basically implemented an evidence-based approach of after-school programs and life coaching 
Mm-hmm. And um, they did that across the board, especially for families who could never afford to do that on their own. You know, the government stepped in and paid for it, virtually eliminated their drug and alcohol problem. You know, so I know there's fixable solutions to this. Right. I noticed that theme in the book that like things will get cleared away one by one. We're we're kind of figuring out each category one by one. We won't have these uh, brain-based issues at some point. They're manageable. They're actually physically there. There's something to adjust. Yeah. I tried to end every chapter with a little bit of a summary and way forward uh-huh. into how we can utilize this knowledge as power. Mm-hmm. Because I think once we understand the biological mechanisms of behavior, we're mm-hmm. in a better position to fix the behaviors that we don't find desirable, okay? Uh, like drug and alcohol addiction, the, the program that I just explained. So I, I do think that uh, learning learning these types of things about ourselves doesn't take away from our humanity. It's actually going to bring us to it because we're going to be able to make a better world. We'll be able to put those limitations to the side and be more connected is- that's true. Yeah, One, all it takes is following the evidence. You know? Right. One last thing I always like to check is book-related. Um, what category of books do you read? A category of books. What have you liked to read in your time? In in my spare time, I gravitate towards science books. Mm-hmm. I just endlessly fascinated with all types of branches of science. So the past two years, I've been reading a lot of biology because Mm -hmm. that was the research I had to do for Please to Meet Me. Mm -hmm. But I also love reading a lot about cosmology and astrology, even physics, you know, these sorts of things. Even though I have to admit I don't fully understand them, I don't think the physicists fully understand them either. But that's what makes it so fun and compelling. Because Mm -hmm. in addition to trying to understand ourselves, uh, I'm kind of envious of the cosmologists who are trying to understand the universe. You know, right. that's just something that uh, is always fun to try to wrap your head around. You know, in addition, though, you know, we can explain where we came from to an extent through evolution and so on. But what about the evolution of the universe? Where did it come from? Where is it going? What's it all mean? Those sorts of questions are the types of books that I really enjoy reading as well. That makes sense. That's pretty cool. We all think a different, that's like the broadest level, and then there's more specific level, and there's some that's just like how to make a sale for a deal. It's more like it, I think it gets narrowed <laughs> down. There's different levels of uh, broadness. That's pretty cool. It's good to have that variety. Mm-hmm. I would like to say I've been glad to have you on this wonderful episode of The Armin Show, number 228. I want to showcase the book here. Please to meet me. Professor Bill Sullivan, thank you for having been on the show. It's been a real pleasure. Thanks for all of your really thoughtful questions. This is great. And we are out.